I suspect that many of you are here because you came across a little book that you finished on the flight uh, and then just kept on reading. Um, Jim Carse's Finite and Infinite Games is one of those uh, books that gets on people's lists of books that changed how they think about everything. And uh, Kevin Kelly tracked James P. Carse down. Uh, he's retired from NYU. And it's a great privilege and honor to have him here to speak tonight. Jim Carse. One of the pleasures about being here is uh, finally meeting Stuart, which was only uh, an hour ago or so. <clears throat> Not only was I a fan of the catalog, but Stuart wrote, I don't even know if he remembers this, he wrote a review of the book in question uh, that is one of my favorite reviews. And it goes simply like this. It was, I, I believe it was written in the, uh, in the catalog. He said, a number of people have been recommending this book to me. I've read it, and I'm not yet sure it's not horse exhaust. <laughs> and the, the, only, uh, the only review I like better, really, is um, one in the New York Times. The, the reviewer took uh, 10 or 12 precious inches in the Sunday book review to say I should never have been born. <laughs> you know, it's, it's always a little intimidating for me as, a, as an academic to, to be in the context or be in the presence of people in a situation like this who actually do and make things. You know, it's like, it's like uh, truly being in the real world. When I... When I think about myself that way, I realize that I, I went to school, uh, I, it, I guess I was four, maybe five years old, and into kindergarten, and never left. I've never really been uh, truly uh, gainfully employed. <laughs> you know, I've just been, I've been reading books and talking to people about them. Uh, my entire life, uh, or as as people in the academy like to refer to it, the um, the leisure of the theory class. I uh, I have uh, one of my colleagues uh, said to me one day a couple of years ago. He said he said, "Cars, thank God it's Wednesday." <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, as Stuart mentioned, I did retire, uh, but I can't remember when. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure there's a date, but nothing happened. You know, I, I felt like I was already entire, uh, retired. I've always been retired. But the another thing about uh, being in a group like this is, is that it's very different from an academic audience because. <clears throat> Academics uh, don't come to hear what you know. They come to hear what you don't know. And uh, it's very competitive, and, uh, and it has a wholly different kind of spirit. And I feel considerably challenged by the fact that you, you are undoubtedly here 
uh, truly to uh, learn something, and I, I hope I can um, respond to that uh, successfully. What I would um, like to do tonight is um, reflect, really. This is more reflection and rumination than it is uh, uh, a, a genuine lecture on a very interesting and complicated issue, and that is the relationship of religion and war. It's complicated because almost inevitably any kind of war anywhere becomes identified with or somehow involves the phenomenon of religion. And and we, we often feel that war has, in fact, been, or religion has been the cause of war. And yet at the same time, uh, there is something in the nature of religion that's really anti-war. So how do, we, how do we straighten out all these ideas? I have a thesis I'd like to uh, try on you. Also, I have an idea that I've never really discussed in public before, but I've been working on it for a while. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, uh, I've been, uh, I mentioned a couple of people before uh, the lecture. I've been, uh, been working on a book I call Higher Ignorance. Sub, subtitled, The Religious Case Against Belief. Uh, what I'd like to argue tonight, uh, I'd like to develop an understanding and see how you respond to it, that uh, makes a distinction between religion and belief. To be religious and to be a believer are really two different things. Uh, now, I, I know it sounds odd, and I, it's, it's a difficult case to make, and I may not make it very well, but I'm going to try it in, in a moment. The thesis uh, that I want to discuss is uh, simple to state, very complicated and difficult to um, uh, elucidate and defend. And that is uh, war is the ultimate finite game, religion the ultimate infinite game. Now, by the way, in these remarks, I will use a lot of big statements, a lot of generalizations. And I'll leave the nuances out uh, for two reasons. It's too much time. And also, I, I want to uh, stimulate as much thinking as I can and, and, you, and uh, develop. I hope you, you uh, feel free to ask a number of questions. Uh, the, or in, in, uh, uh, well, let, let, I think it's important to give a little kind of conceptual background to what I'm about to say. I know a lot of you have read the, the book, the games book, and I, I'm sorry if I go over some material you're very familiar with, and some of you, many of you have not, and this may be too brief uh, for you not to be absolutely recondite, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. There, the, the simplest possible definition of finite and infinite games is that a finite game is a game you play to win and an infinite game one you play to continue the play, to keep the play going. An infinite player has the talent of seeing when someone is about to lose and is able when he or she does see that, 
either to change the rules or otherwise find a way of getting that person back into the play. So that you, you can think of a finite game or of, as, of an infinite game having a lot of finite characteristics, of course, uh, surrounded by people who, uh, who may or may not be involved in the game or who may be and find themselves losing, uh, losing out and so on, and, and therefore having the freedom of changing the rules, tra- changing the structure of the game to keep everyone in play, as opposed to a finite game, which, which has um, very definite and unchangeable rules. Uh, and, and the reason that rules are unchangeable is that there's no way of knowing who's won if the rules are changed. If the Lakers come out uh, in the second half uh, when they're already 20 points behind and realize they've got to do something dramatic to win and they decide to come out with two balls, uh, the, uh, they might win the game, but uh, as a matter of fact, uh, they won't uh, convince anyone else. They, they have to play within those boundaries definitely. Now, the, the notion of a boundary is very important in a, in a finite game, and it's very, again, it's very complicated. There's a lot of nuances to it. Um, boundaries can be of several kinds. You, you have to know when a game is coming to an end or how it comes to an end. You have to agree on that. If it doesn't come to an end, uh, you really haven't played the game. I'm talking about finite games now. But the, the boundaries uh, can be of several kinds. They can be temporal boundaries. They can be spatial boundaries. They can be numerical boundaries. Uh, and uh, they can even be psychological boundaries, of course. Uh, but everyone has to understand where the boundary is and exactly how to play and how they are within that boundary, where, where they're related to the boundary. Now, now, an, an infinite player, um, instead of an inf- the, the an infinite player, instead of uh, living within boundaries, lives within what I'd like to call a horizon. Now, a horizon is a very different from a, a boundary. You can't tell exactly where the line of a horizon is. If I asked you to draw the line somewhere that indicates the end of your vision, uh, it's something you cannot see from the center of your vision. You just see where your vision ends up. And if you go to that place and indicate the line, of course, now the line is somewhere else. So therefore, a horizon, a horizontal experience, is one in which you, you shift, you move, and your vision changes. New things come into view. And as a result, you are in a different place than you were uh, previously. I remember, I'll give you a very simple example. I, when I went to uh, college, I'd, I'd grown up at... Uh, in a sort of a typical Midwestern family. In my first semester of college, I took an introductory course in uh, sociology. It was the first time, believe it or not, I ever heard the word middle class. And I thought, middle class, it's a strange 
term. And then when I began to realize that I had grown up in a middle-class family and culture, suddenly I had a very different picture of what that culture was, who I am, uh, what my life has been about, and so on. A very simple way of moving the line of my, the end of my vision uh, to something else. Normally, we would hope that anyone in an educational process, whether it's in school or in their life, uh, indefinitely extends their vision that they live, as, as I would like to call it, horizontally. Horizontally. Now, another element of important to uh, a finite play is, is what I call veiling. You have to, when you're, when you're in a finite game, you have to take the game very seriously. Um, there are lots of examples of this. Uh, the, and, uh, sports, of course, uh, is, uh, and any athletic event is a pretty good example. The, uh, while you're playing, you've, you've got to commit yourself somehow uh, to the idea of winning. You've got to be totally dedicated to it. You've got to have nothing else on your mind. Uh, it, it has to be essentially life or death. But in fact, of course, it's not. It is the, the, the we put ourselves into that into that frame of mind freely. We choose to veil ourselves. Now, this for me is an extremely important point because what that means is that if we veil ourselves to enter into a finite game, it is something we're actually doing freely and in a certain sense also consciously. We're, we're aware of it. Even if we're not aware, we're aware. At some level, someplace in us, we know what we're doing. What that means is that any game we play, we play freely. What that means is that even games that are very, very difficult with high stakes, even warfare, is something we do freely. Or, to put it the other way around, it's something we can choose not to do. I remember Jean-Paul Sartre and how shocked I was in a section of his of his book uh, being in nothingness when he talked uh, about uh, he made this point about about warfare saying that even and, and of course now he, at this point he had the the nazis in mind the german invasion of france in mind uh, even when the army brings the war to your village and it's an overwhelming force uh, you you still have the freedom not to fight it. You may pay with your life, but you cannot excuse yourself from the freedom of choice to do that. Therefore, we, we, we say, or uh, sometimes I use this phrase, whoever must play cannot play. True play is always taken up uh, with uh, a spontaneous desire to do the play. I, uh, when I, uh, 
I'm often asked naturally uh, for examples of, of uh, infinite play. And uh, there are many, of course, but one of my favorites is when I was a, a kid, I was living in a, as I said, in a middle-class uh, neighborhood, and at this point in a suburb of uh, Chicago. It was during the Second World War. There was across the street from our house an open lot, a double lot. It was quite quite large for that uh, that area. It had never been built on. And as far as I know, uh, nobody owned it. It was just there, and, and uh, kids played on it. What we played on it was this. We played basically a softball game. But the way it happened is that you'd get up in the morning. I lived right across the street from this, uh, this space. There would be someone out there already playing. Or you'd go out yourself, maybe, and just throw the ball around, throw it up in the air and catch it. And eventually someone would come out. We would play all day long. And never, and sometimes keep scores, sometimes not. It was, it was almost an endless game. But then something very peculiar began to happen. Uh, that was uh, a summer when all this began. Then school started that fall. It turned out that uh, we all knew this, but we didn't ex- anticipate these consequences. There was a Catholic school, uh, two or three blocks. Uh, away from this lot. Now, the Catholic kids got out later than the rest of us, the non-Catholics. And they also had a different experience in their school. So when they, when they came down alongside, uh, they came down the, the street where we were playing our uh, softball game, uh, they were full of all this, um, I, I don't know, anger or frustration or something. Uh, you know, I think if you're Catholic, you probably understand. Uh, the, uh, and and, and they, they immediately and aggressively got in the play, into the play of this game and, and, you know, essentially destroyed it. But there was one kid in the group, a little guy named John Fellingham. I have no idea whatever happened to John, who had a rare gift. His gift was that he, he had a way of talking to these Catholic kids, giving them poetic names, speed, ace, champ, slugger, tiger. Uh, and and, uh, and the, the kids were charmed by these names. And they, they took their place in the game with that name, with that identity. And the games went on. Now, I have to admit, though, <laughs> that these, these Catholics are pretty scary people. I, it didn't always work for me, that the, the game kept, kept going. And it was, I, I guess it was somewhere in my early adulthood, I realized that the image of these kids coming down the street after school had fixed itself in my mind so deeply that I actually believed, and, you know, I think I still do, that I can tell a Catholic on the street. <laughs> I see someone walking along, and I, there's a Catholic. I'm sure the guy's a Catholic. And, uh, and it's, one of, it's one of my really deep prejudices. I, I just haven't been able uh, to lose it. But the, 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 important, the, the point I want to make is that 
uh, little John Fellingham, who's a little squeak of a guy, was really uh, otherwise had nothing to commend himself, had the gift of poetry. He was able to create a linguistic, uh, playful atmosphere that allowed these, these kids to play in our game and allowed us to have them in the game. And naturally, it changed their lives and our lives at the same time. Modestly, mind you, but at least it was, it was a significant change, and I remember it very well. It, was, it stands out as one of the more interesting uh, experiences of that kind in my, in my childhood. I, I just want to make one more uh, point before I go into some other reflections here, and that is something I don't stress enough in the book, I think. And that is, now I don't have Catholics in mind here, but um, there is something we have to call genuine evil. Evil, if I use the terms of the game, the game language, would be an infinite game that becomes absorbed utterly in a finite game, where infinite play is ended for good. It's not always the case, no matter how excellent our poetry is, that we can include the outsider, the opponent, within our play. It very often is not the case. That's one, I want to stress that because when I talk about war, I have a very strong anti-war bias. But on the other hand, I understand and I would emphasize the fact that very frequently issues of genuine evil are involved in warfare. And I want to, I'll come back to that point a little later. I want to come back to uh, the issue of poetry, too. Now, um, I want to make, I just have four categories here of, of discussion. If I, these are four topics uh, let me to go through those, uh, tell you what they are, and then I'll reflect on each one of them. Why would I make the distinction between belief and religion? If, if religion and belief are distinct from one another, what then is religion and what is belief? That's the first topic. Uh, second topic is uh, how do we look at warfare in these, in these categories? Uh, what can we say briefly about the nature of warfare that will that maybe illuminate our our discussion? The third category is how are belief and warfare related to each other, and the fourth, how are religion and warfare related to each other, assuming they're different? Let me look first then at the difference between belief and religion. When we talk about Belief, whether it's religious or any other kind of belief, uh, the first thing we're likely to wonder is what, in fact, the person believes, what, what someone's beliefs are. A, a question rarely asked is, what is the nature of belief itself? Of course, by belief now, I mean really deep, uh, what we call true belief. The kind of beliefs, you know, it's not... Like, uh, I believe I left my car in a no-parking zone, or uh, I believe that marriage is not going to work out, or, you know, the, the whole thousands of kinds of beliefs that, that in uh, the classical tradition are sometimes referred to, uh, cl- classical philosophical tradition, as opinions. 
Uh, I mean really true beliefs, the kind that you, you would uh, die for or, or risk your life for. What, what, uh, what in fact, is a belief like that? Or what, what is the nature of a belief like that? Uh, there are several characteristics that I want to uh, emphasize. One is that a belief understood that way is the point where your thinking ends. It's a boundary situation. You come right up to a certain point, and you stop with a kind of certainty and don't dare to go beyond that. Religion has had a lot of this uh, in it. I mean, for example, in Christianity, the creeds, the early creeds, were intended to distinguish genuine believers from non-believers. The point was, if you could say the creed honestly, then you were a Christian. If you could not say it honestly, you were outside. You were not a Christian. Therefore, if you were a Christian, your thinking has to end where the creed ends. Now, naturally, on the other side of that, there are thinking can become very active. You can think a lot about uh, what the meaning of the elements of the creed are, let's say. You can argue with each other and have, have uh, a vivid discussion about it, but still, it's a bounded activity. It's something that occurs strictly within limits. So there's a limit, there's, and the, one of the limits is where our thinking ends. There's another kind of limit, and this is a little bit more difficult to, uh, to discuss. I'm not sure I can make it absolutely clear. It's what I would call a temporal limit. Once we are totally convinced of once we have a very strong and clear belief, we also assume that there will be nothing happening afterwards to change the nature of that belief. So that, in effect, what's happened is that for us, the true believer, history has ended. We've reached the end of significant history. Things will happen, but we will always understand them in present terms. This uh, is, um, uh, I mean, it's, actually, it's, it's interesting to look at this in light of the, um, of this, of the foundation, because um, in a way, what a true believer believes is not in a long now, but in a right now that stays forever. And so that the now moves with them, and nothing significant happens in history afterwards to change the nature of that belief. This is a very big tradition in, uh, in Western philosophy. I suppose uh, Hegel's the best example. Hegel thought there was, uh, oh, I'd love to talk about this, but I th- Hegel's one of my favorites. Uh, Here's what Hegel said. Uh, Hegel thought there was a a contradiction within the nature of thought itself that created the desire in the thinker to resolve the 
contradiction. It was a contradiction we couldn't stand having. Now, without... Well, I'll give you a simple example. The... um, in, uh, in his uh, extraordinary book, uh, The Phenomenology of the Spirit, uh, he uh, writes in the, in the beginning, it was a very complicated, difficult book to read, but uh, one of the parts I understand <laughs> is, that, is the discussion of the master-servant relationship. What he points out is that while the master is superior to the servant, The servant, in fact, understands more about the master than the master does about the servant. The servant has a certain intellectual superiority to the master. This this idea, and will actually eventually undo the master, but as the higher level of understanding will, in the end, uh, be superior, will triumph. That very point was what excited Karl Marx when he was reading Hegel. He interpreted it not in terms of the spirit, but in terms of matter, in terms of property, in terms of uh, physical terms. That is, the servant will eventually uh, overthrow the master, not intellectually, but in terms of property, and take over over ownership of what the master now owns. Now, what's what's at stake in that is... uh, is a contradiction in the way these people are related that requires a kind of resolution. What what fails in Hegel, in my opinion, and not only my opinion, is that this process comes to an end. Hegel is the first and the greatest of what we call end-of-history thinkers. Eventually, this contradiction will resolve itself And the mind, pure mind, will no longer be in contradiction to itself, but absolutely uh, identified with itself. And who is this mind? Well, of course, it's God, the ultimate, infinite mind. So that from Hegel's point of view, God in relation to the earth is God externalizing himself in such a way uh, and creating contradictions that require God himself to eliminate the differences between himself and the other and for all things to become, in the end, one. History ends, time ends, process ends uh, in that that respect. Now, of course, um, Hegel... uh, there were some odd things in Hegel's life. For example, uh, he thought for a while uh, one of the kings of, of Germany, I think it was Frederick II, was um, uh, pretty close to the end of history itself. <laughs> and, or, and the other thing is, of course, that Hegel thought that uh, he himself, his own thinking, was proof of the, the culmination of history in this, in this set of ideas. In other words, extremely arrogant uh, and, and one has to say in the end, ignorant uh, attitude. What, what, one of the consequences of Hegel's uh, thinking is that he really set up the boundaries firmly. There is no history outside this. Everything now is intelligible. We understand everything. 
That's why in Marxism, this is where we, we know this way of thinking the best, if you don't agree with us, it's not that there's an intellectual issue. There is, in fact, an existential issue. You are criminal. You are in violation of the very basic essence of what it means to be human, and you have to be eliminated. End of history thinking is extremely uh, uh, important in, uh, in recent uh, world history, and it can be at times extremely, as we know, vicious. So uh, what is belief? Belief involves the end of, of thinking, the true belief in the way in which I stated it. Uh, you understand now, again, I'm making these great big uh, radical statements. It also means the end of history in the way in which I talked about it. Belief requires something else. If you think about the way people discuss and present their beliefs, you will notice that they always have in mind the non-believer. People don't state their beliefs unless they're stating them to or uh, in the interest of the non-believer. You don't state your beliefs if everyone already agrees with them. Uh, you, you, you state them really to, to create a distinction between yourself and the other. One of the consequences of this is that the believer can't believe without a non-believer. And therefore, part of the process of believing is to create an opponent. Uh, theists absolutely depend on atheists. Uh, one, of the, uh, one, one of the great uh, points I think Nietzsche made, uh, one of the reasons Nietzsche I think is uh, a very uh, – if, if I had more time, I'd, I, I would no doubt be quoting Nietzsche even more. But when, when Nietzsche talked about the death of God, what he was talking about, in fact, was – that um, it wasn't an atheism. It was a way of eliminating the object, the opponent to believers, in such a way that belief no longer had any meaning. So the death of God for him was the death of true belief. The importance of an opponent was, this is something we could reflect on a great deal. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. I'm, I'm going to come back to that point a little bit later. One last thing I want to say about belief is the importance of certainty to belief. And true believers usually have some kind of textual basis for it. In Marxism, as a simple example, of course, it was Marx's theory himself, the uh, uh, the declaration, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the simple communist philosophy. Uh, in uh, religion, it's very often a sacred text. What's important here is not just the existence of the text, but the way the text is used. The text is referred to as the end of our discussion. It is understood as providing truth, as being the basis for certainty. The Bible, for example, for true believers of this kind, answers every question. It is itself the source of, of all truth. Now, this, you know, sometimes it gets 
uh, silly, I think. I mean, uh, it's hard not to avoid examples like this, but the, uh, the, the book that was being sold in the uh, bookstore of the, of the um, uh, Grand Canyon, I don't know if you remember that little, little incident, uh, that, that took issue with uh, the theory of evolution and made the point, this, it was a very popular book, by the way, sold a lot of copies in the uh, bookstore, made the point that the Grand Canyon was created by Noah's flood. Uh, as it emptied out, it created the canyon, and they felt there was a lot of proof for this and so on. That, that's a way of using a biblical text as, as a kind of template for understanding everything else. Or it, it doesn't have to be biblical. It could be a lot of other uh, kinds of philosophical or political uh, agendas and declarations. That's belief. Now, what about religion if it's different from, from belief? I, the, 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 this is the, uh, this is the uh, original idea, at least original for me, that I wanted to present to you, and I'd love to know how you, you respond to it. I was trying to uh, think, it was not in respect to this, this talk, it was before uh, we got to this. I was trying to think of good examples of really significant infinite play. And it struck me, uh, and I was kind of surprised at how I hadn't seen this before, that the longest, most durable, identifiable traditions are the religions. Judaism has been with us as Judaism for 2,500 years. Hinduism has been with us as Hinduism for even longer. Buddhism for 2,600 years and so on, Christianity and Islam. And, and, and I, I, in other words, longevity is a really significant element in the understanding of religion. Now, where this gets complicated is that I, I'm not saying that infinite play is religion. What I'm really saying is that religion, the religions, the great religions, somehow have learned how to continue their existence, often at very great challenge, very great risk to themselves, with all kinds of Catholics pouring in from both sides. Uh, they've, they've learned how to, to keep these traditions going uh, and, 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 continue, and it is still full of life. Uh, in spite of all these challenges. So what is it in them that will tell us something about the nature of infinite play? Uh, what we have to remember, too, of course, is that a lot of religions haven't endured. That, as a matter of fact, scores of them have long since disappeared. Egyptian religions, Sumerian, Mayan, Navajo. Are, are, actually, Navajo survives a little bit, but uh, uh, only in fragments. And... and uh, so on. Just many, many religions around the world have long since disappeared. So what is it about the ones that continue that can uh, illustrate for us or are examples for us of genuine infinite play? Well, for one thing, and here's, um, 
Here's something I think a lot of religious people might have trouble with. Uh, These religions are never identified with an ethnic group, with a certain belief system, with a geographical area, with a political ideology, with a given culture, with a given society, uh, they, they are non-identified with the context in which they exist, while at the same time able to use elements in that context to make themselves richer. But they are never... So, so for example, when Rome ended, the Roman religions ended. Uh, when culture, a certain culture wears out, the religions that I've identified with those wear out. An interesting example for me is Mormonism. Uh, The Mormons have taken off uh, extraordinarily rapidly. Uh, The only religion that's grown initially faster and larger than Mormonism, in my my knowledge of religious history, is Islam. And maybe I'll mention that a little bit later. What's curious about the Mormons, though, is that they, they very carefully, they seem to identify very much with American culture. There doesn't seem to be much yet about Mormonism that is genuinely Mormon. There aren't Mormon philosophers or Mormon, uh, or Mormon art or music that, that stands out uh, in, uh, in, in a way that we all would recognize. But uh, at the same time, they, they have a kind of religious... Um, fervor that we, we have to keep an eye on. Maybe this is, uh, uh, we're watching right in front of our eyes the growth of the appearance of another religion. I don't know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an open question for me. So non-identity. Now, non-identity uh, has a consequence to it. If, if a religion is not identified with its place, its history, its time, its people, its culture, and so on, what then is it? What is its identity? What I find most compelling about this way of thinking is that we can't say. There is something about a living religion that we cannot finally define. It continues. We all try to define it, Christians are always trying to say what Christianity is really about. The Jews, what the big discussion in Judaism is who is really a Jew. Uh, and and uh, uh, so on. These questions can't be answered. As soon as we get close to an identity, uh, we realize that we've, we, we missed it. There's something almost, I, I guess the metaphor I want here is something like, uh, something explosive. Uh, there is uh, something at the center of these religions that creates our thinking, that compels us to ask the question, what's going on here? But without providing us any basis for the answer. It's like a little bit like, from in, in my thinking, it's like a black hole in reverse. It's a it's some powerful thing that keeps sending out all this provocation, 
and never allowing the people provoked uh, to settle the issues. Um, who is a Jew? Uh, who's really a Christian? What is Christianity about? What is Jesus really teaching? And so on. These questions are not answerable. There is not only, in other words, not only does a religion not identify with something, it doesn't have uh, an, uh, a definable identity. Religion is also, in this sense, the religions I'm talking about are, are profoundly horizontal. That is, they're interested in vision, in enlightenment, in awareness, awakening, um, in in extended in uh, sort of extended knowledge, self knowledge, lucidity, a new kind of seeing. Seeing is very important to this this way of thinking about religion, and seeing is always horizontal. The more you see, the different you are and the different the religion is for you. Religion is, in in the same way I'm talking about it, um, is also a historical, in the sense which I talked about it before. History is open. It's terribly interesting in Judaism that, um, I mean, the Jews are probably the most, the rabbinical tradition, I think, is, is really extremely clear on this issue. You can't solve a question. As soon as you settle an issue, you have to accept the fact that in the future someone's going to object to it. So if the future is open, you can't come around from that end and close down the system. The system has an open-endedness that you don't know how to close and you don't know what's going to keep it going. So you can't even predict what it's going to be like in another century or two. There is an ahistoric, there, there is, um, ahistoricality is not the word I want. I, want to, I guess the word I want is really historicality. It's genuinely history. It's really historical. One of the metaphors of historicality in this sense, of course, would be the path. There's always a way ahead, but you don't know exactly what it, what's on it. A path, a way a pilgrimage, a journey, a, 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 a wandering. You know, the, one of the great images of medieval Christianity is the wandering monk, who would, uh, so-called peregrino, who would set off in a little boat or set off into the wilderness and just see what happened. Uh, so so that, that, that's, that's part of the the vision of the historicality of the sort of unendingness of uh, the religion in which way, uh, the way in which I'm talking about it. And then finally, this point, religion of this kind also has a sacred text. But the text is looked at very differently. Uh, There is a... um, Jesus certainly has uh, a centrality to uh, centrality to Christianity. We all accept that every Christian will, and non-Christian probably. But then the next question is, who is Jesus? Uh, and and I, 
I, I'm sure you, I'll just remind you of the, of the fact I'm sure you're all aware of, that there are whole libraries of books on the nature of Jesus. The issue is wildly open. It's not closed. He is a peculiar, unidentifiable, unparaphrasable person. You cannot say what Jesus taught without being challenged in some way. And yet at the same time, there's a great desire on the part of many people to say what he taught. But the desire is not, uh, is not answerable. Aristotle very famously said, um, knowledge begins in wonder. Uh, speaking religiously, I would say it also ends in wonder. So knowledge from a religious point of view takes us to wonder. We wonder what is going to happen. Oh, okay. Oh, my. I'm sorry. Just going a little long here. Um, Okay, very quickly, uh, elements of warfare. Whereas religion is a a phenomenon of longevity, warfare is a phenomenon of brevity. One of the big issues in the Iraq war now is how to end it, bring it to an end. The Six-Day War in Israel... Is, is a mythic example of a war so effective it ended right away. So, so there, it's, a, it's a boundary way of acting and thinking. Uh, it's very important in warfare to have a successful uh, kind of veiling. Now, veiling is, is, uh, uh, is, is complicated in warfare. Number one, the enemy has to be veiled. We, we don't see the person over there as a person, as one of us, but one of them, nameless. The, uh, the soldiers in Iraq referred to the prisoners they had in Abu Ghraib and other places, not as he and she, but as it. Uh, it, is, it is reducing the other uh, to something different, unknown, and, uh, as it were, really... Uh, Irrelevant, but also the soldier has to be veiled himself. The soldier has to have ways of of uh, justifying to himself what he's doing. One of the great tragedies of war is what happens to uh, people after they've done their soldiering. This is tragic uh, when they realize what they've done as soldiers. But in the training of soldiers. Uh, this sort of self-veiling uh, is absolutely essential. Otherwise, a war couldn't be fought. Um, instead of a... Uh, well, and, and wars, of course, also need opponents. Another thing that that's strange about the war in Iraq is that it's very hard to figure out who the opponent is. The original reason for going to war is not the reason we're there anymore. And just who's opposing us is not clear. It changes all the time. And, and so, therefore, it's, it, it's an unsuccessful war, uh, kind of warfare. But I, I, I want to give a twist to that, and that is when we have a desire for war, we also have a desire, or once we begin to mythologize the warrior, we also have a desire for an, an enemy. The enemy doesn't create an army. The army 
creates its enemies. Once we have an army, army, we begin to look for enemies. I could say more about that if if the occasion comes up later. Now, you see the relation here between belief and warfare. Uh, Believing and and warfare are both extremely uh, boundary-bounded activities. But the main thing I want to say is that the warrior and the believer tend over time to take on each other's characteristics. Uh, So we have uh, the war, the the soldier believer, and the the, and the and the uh, soldier is saint. The believer is soldier, and the soldier is as saint. We, for example, uh, we we monumentalize uh, our soldiers in an, in a in a genuinely religious way, for or at least in a as in the other way of, of thinking about religion. For example, take the, the Lincoln and Washington monuments. The Washington monument uh, is is a great, like a divine finger, not only pointing upward, but a kind of warning finger. It has a powerfully religious character to it. There's a lot of other characters. You know, it's the it's the phallic representation of the father of our country, and uh, so on. In the Lincoln Memorial at the other end of the mall is a temple, and Lincoln is seated in it as a god, surrounded by the sacred text of his, of his speaking. Warfare creates heroes. Heroes are the winners of battles, even if they die. As a matter of fact, heroes really have to die to be genuine heroes, to be remembered as heroes. And we have lots of ways of, of memorializing our heroes. We name airports after them and highways. And uh, I noticed the other day that poor uh, uh, General MacArthur just got a tunnel uh, over here. <laughs> um, I can't help telling you that, that um, coming out on, on the plane, <laughs> I... I was, I was looking for material to talk about uh, the warrior as, as believer and believer as warrior and so on. I picked up the last volume of the Left Behind series of books. Now, um, I, I don't want you to think there's a professional envy here. I, I wrote a, a fictional gospel kind of my own version of, of Jesus, um, that sold 6,000 copies. And these folks have sold 6, 60 million copies. I did the arithmetic. It's, it's 100,000 books for every one of mine. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of people out there who are affected by it and, who, and, and whose beliefs are represented by it. And, and it's really remarkable stuff. I outlined and circled and wrote exclamation points all the way through it. I'll just share a couple of things with you. What happens, of course, is that um, there's, there's a great warfare between the evil, uh, uh, sinful part of the world and the, and the handful of believers, a remnant, actually, 
of believers who take on vast millions of extremely well-prepared, excellent, disciplined soldiers. The, the soldiers, the, the enemy, the, the evil forces are called, interestingly, the global community. Uh, now, if, if this in your mind means the United Nations... Uh, is quite possible. The, the head of the global community, the, 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 the head soldier, is... is a, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, I really don't mean to make fun of it that much, but it's, it's, it's hilarious. He dresses, he dresses in... Uh, a, he wears a chartreuse, uh, sleeveless shirt hung with medals and symbols, uh, everyone but the Christian symbol, and, and his great huge rings on his fingers. And I don't believe the authors, a guy named LaHaye, Tim LaHaye and somebody Jenkins, were conscious of the fact that they were describing a pimp. <laughs> but I, I'm sure that was in, the, in their unconscious. Now, the, the global community, referred to in this battle as the GC, uh, has its own uh, television network. So when Jesus appears uh, at the end, uh, there, of course, there's all kinds of lightning and uh, r- raining of blood and so on. Uh, the, 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 television, uh, the television firm of the GC uh, leaves all this out. And what's, what's the name of this television uh, of this television system. It's the GCNN. <laughs> I'm sorry, but... Uh, and uh, in other words, the liberal press, uh, the liberal media. Uh, it, it, but it, it, it's, it's such a, a vivid and, in a way, disturbing example of the way in which, in which the, the religious person has become heroic. Jesus is now a hero. He appears on a white horse white hair, surrounded by white um, armies of white. The leader of the, of the GC is on a black horse in his chartreuse shirt. Uh, and, and Jesus comes to end everything. This is it. It's the final, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the last moment. History's over. Now, I just have a second. I'll just take a second on this. The, the relationship of religion and war. I go back to the idea of poetry. The poet is more powerful, I believe, than the soldier. Plato in The Republic uh, described the poet as a person who could deceive you person who represents reality as something it isn't. Plato actually recommended that poets do this to protect the integrity of the republic. He recommended a kind of propaganda, a way of deceiving the public. What what Plato didn't quite see is that he himself is a great poet. And so the whole thing is a work of poetry. Plato used the term poetes or poiesis, poiesis meaning poetry and poetes, the poet. But it means more than just poetry. It means, it means a kind of creativity. He included everything. He even included cosmetics in it. 
and uh, carpentry and architecture and building. These are the creators in our society. These people, as, as Plato saw it, are dangerous, but they're also the way out of, of, the, of the issue. Osama bin Laden, in his little cave, some were hidden somewhere, was able by means of poetry to get the United States to spend, I think, what is it now, $4 billion a month, or a week, a week, yeah, on, on this war. All he did was make a few videos. Interesting, look at it another way. Osama is less dangerous, a lot of you might object to this, to the American people than our own drunk teenagers. Every three weeks, enough people die on the highways to create another 9-11. But we are fixed by Osama's poetic deception into thinking uh, this is really the way our world should be structured. But the poets can do just something else. Osama is veiling us. He's a deceiver. Poets can also unveil us. The poet is able to go into the a temple of Lincoln and ask, did we have to fight this terrible war? Didn't we rather have to deal with an illness in the mind that made uh, vicious racial distinctions. Wasn't that the struggle? Rather than uh, trying to keep the states together, a territorial and boundary event? Or Washington was, in fact, the war of the Revolutionary War necessary. He's our hero but maybe he's also our fool. Canada, after all, never had a war of revolution. George III died, and the need for it was really gone. But the poet as deceiver puts that monument right in front of us. The poet as unveiler uh, asks the deeper question. One of the most significant events of the 20th century, strangely rarely discussed, is the awesome fact that the Soviet Union came to an end without one death. The Russians got together and decided they, they were free to do it. We no longer want, we're no longer this nation. And it was over. We get up every day deciding to be San Francisco or to be a church or America or something. We can also get up in the morning and decide not to be. The poet offers that chance. And the poet in this sense is the deepest, most uh, representative member of the religion I'm talking about, that kind of religion. So can the poet save us? I wonder.
Thank you. Thank you. Is this on? We have some questions for you, if you don't mind. Um, if you have the energy. This um, first one is from Sandeep. You raise your hand if you're... There you go. Um, in your experience, from your research, have you um, come across a game where you play to let the other players win? If you have, would it still be a finite game? And if it's not, is it part of the human nature to only win? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky business because um, sometimes letting someone win is a way of winning yourself. Um, it, pro- it, it establishes your own superiority in the, in the, in the play. Uh, instead of... Um, I would would say say a little bit differently that it's not a matter of letting someone win. It's a matter of keeping someone in the play, Uh, keeping the issue of winning and losing in a kind of poetic uh, balance. Uh, So uh, it's, it's it's a very good question, very hard to give a simple answer, but... Um, but I'm, I'm always suspicious when I see people, you know, like, like you do with a kid who really wants to win badly. And so you, you play your cards in such a way that the kid wins. It's really kind of an arrogant thing to do uh, and, and, uh, and isn't genuine play. It's a little bit on the trickery side. But, uh, but I understand the, the, uh, the, the feeling in the question. Sure, there are times when uh, you really you want to, you don't want to play a game that just crushes somebody. You know, when when the world heavyweight champ comes out and has to um, fight his grandmother, this this is not a uh, this is not a legitimate uh, finite game. Here's another question from uh, Fabrice Florin. Um, can we find a cure for blind faith, or I would seem maybe belief? In our lifetime, if so, what might that be? You know, we really, really need poets. Uh, ways we do really. I, I, uh, we need people who can, uh, who, who who read a great deal, who think a great deal, uh, who uh, who are able to to get at the ways in which people veil themselves. And not be judgmental in uh, in a sense, but but try to, to try to create a larger inclusive context. And you know, I, I don't know if we can do it. I uh, I was talking with Kevin this morning. I think he was a little shocked when I told him I actually am a pessimist. I don't think uh, we can uh, overcome our contradictions. It doesn't mean I'm not going to try, but I have a feeling that in the end, it's the finite players that went out. And, and what that means is the finite players in the end will destroy their own civilization. 
civilization will destroy itself. I think the indications are, are very strong in that direction. But the only way of preventing it is not an army. But, but let me just let me briefly use the uh, example of rabbinical Judaism. They had for uh, almost 2,000 years, since the destru- second destruction, destruction of the Second Temple, there was no army. There was no country that belonged to them. There was no single language. Even Hebrew died. Uh, and uh, they, were, they were widely dispersed. But the power of the rabbinical imagination kept the tradition alive. What we need are rabbis that can keep the deeper traditions of human culture and existence um, in play and at a profound level. Poets. So maybe uh, kind of a follow-up to that from R.J. Um, You seem entirely perplexed. What allows you to sleep at night and what gets you up in the morning? (laughs) My wife. (laughs) Uh, Also, I I love breakfast. (laughs) Yeah, I'm perplexed. Um, isn't the uh, this is from um, Carlos um, Matzan? Isn't the identity of religion simply the in-out group behavior of followers? For instance, the definition of a kosher food or observance of holidays. I I never met a Jew I would describe as a follower. <laughs> my uh, my my wife is Jewish. My I have three Jewish children and seven Jewish grandchildren, they don't follow me at all. There's no, I don't think they follow anybody. I think genuinely religious people are not followers. They're beginners. They're people who start things, who get it moving and keep it moving. A, 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 a person, um, a religious person is someone who hears well, let me turn that around a little bit. The, 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 the genuine religious teacher, master, guru, rabbi, priest, is someone who in his or her ministration or teaching makes him or herself dispensable. A, a true teacher is one who disappears and leaves it all to the student. So that following... Uh, has to be understood much more as beginning than following. A, a, t- a true teacher starts his student to do something and doesn't know where it's going. Um, this one is from uh, Katrina Galway. We do identify yourself, okay? Yeah. Um, is the U.S. Constitution an example of a believer's text that ends discussion? Or is it infinitely undetermined? You know, oh, that, oh, that's a great question. You know, you know the the um, uh, th- there's a kind of dogma in among Supreme Court justices that, that goes like this: I I don't have an ideology. I 
am committed strictly to understanding things in terms of the Constitution. And it's only a matter of law. It's not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of ideology. It's not a matter of philosophical or religious point of, points of view. It just, it's just law. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the people who say that have very often a very strong ideological uh, uh, bent to themselves. But what's even more interesting is that no matter how strong their ideology is, the Constitution in the end does them in. The Constitution is greater. I mean, the Constitution is a great text. It's something that seems to be interpretable easily, but it, in fact, in practice, it's something that renews its own originality over and over again. No matter who summarizes or how completely they, perfectly they summarize what the Constitution means, um, someone has another meaning. Just the, the, take the First Amendment. The literature on the First Amendment is enormous. I mean, there'd be tens of thousands of books written on the meaning of the First Amendment. It's a great, great document, the Constitution. We're very, we're very privileged to have it. It's po- a work of poetry, by the way. Not law. That's poetry. So um, this one's from Paul King. There you go. Um, Ken Wilber has said, violence is often ended by stronger violence in saner hands. For instance, the U.S. intervention in World War II or Yugoslavia. Do you think this is true, or is this just a rationalization? Uh, you know, the, the great example, of course, of, uh, that everyone talking about warfare has to deal with is the Second World War. I, I have no question whatsoever that it was all evil. I mean, that, that Hitler was evil and a lot of other people, Saddam and so on. Where I think uh, the issue lies, though, is not dealing with an evil enemy, but dealing, or rather dealing with the evil enemy, but at the same time acknowledging the evil in ourselves. Uh, Goethe said, interesting that he'd be a German uh, saying this, he never heard of a crime he himself, he didn't think he could commit. I think what we have to do is recognize in ourselves the desire to do these things or the possibility of them, even as we eliminate them. I'm, I'm quite convinced that all evil is itself the attempt to eliminate evil. And therefore, uh, I mean, if you, if you address, uh, Hitler was convinced that he was wiping the earth clean of the most despicable evil people ever to appear in it. I mean, he was really clear on what the evil was. Can we be so clear about what the evil is? Yes and no. We have to keep the shadow, the deep shading in our, in our question. Go to war, yes, but go to war with a deep feeling of guilt that we have to do this. This is a question from um, Pam, Pam Strayer. There in the back. Yeah, okay. Why do you think people need certainty? That is, believers need certainty. What is it that makes oh, complexity yeah. and uncertainty so difficult to handle? Yeah, that's, uh, I like that question because I, 
don't have an answer. <laughs> the, I like, this is another form of my perplexity here. Uh, the, the, uh, you know, I, I tend to, to get um, psychoanalytic and existential on that issue. Uh, and what I mean by that is this. When someone realizes... Oh, let me I'll tell you a story. I, I, had, I have a friend. I had a friend. He's now dead, I'm very sorry to say. Great loss. A very close friend. Who was uh, a, a hero for me as a kid. He was a great athlete. He was an All-American. He was, uh, uh, he was amazing, beautiful. He was funny, uh, smart. He, uh, he became a Navy SEAL and had a remarkable military career. And then when he, when he got out of the Navy, he, he started a, a series of businesses that didn't really quite succeed. And finally, he got one going. But, but the, 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 the business depended on a certain manufacturing company in uh, Michigan, as it happened. The owner of that company saw what this guy had as a possibility and gave the whole manufacturing process over to his brother, the, the owner of this factory. And overnight, the, my friend's business was gone, just like that. And he had to move his children and give up all. It was, it was a great anguish in his life. Some years after that, I, I was on the phone with him, and it turned out that uh, we were uh, we were both traveling somewhere, and we were crossing paths in Cleveland. And uh, both our, our planes were there at the same time, landing there. And so we made a deal to meet in a bar in, in the terminal in uh, Cleveland, some bar. He knew where it was. I, I uh, he knew where all the bars were. <laughs> so anyway, we 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 met in the bar. He came up to me. He was a little bit late. He said. You'll never believe whom I just saw. I was trying to think, you know, there's got to be something important. He saw that guy that gave the business to his brother. And I had this thrill, really. It was, it was kind of exciting, thinking, if I were a Navy SEAL, <laughs> what would I do to this guy? So, so you know, it was, it was a great, great moment. I, so I said, well, what did you do? And he said, I bought him a beer. I said, you what? What? And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, hey, it's only business. And uh, it, it was like it blew my horizons away. It's like suddenly saying, hey, it's only the university. You know, it's only America or something like that. Uh, and and there there is a deeper issue involved in this, and the the um, what, what I found um, uh, really um, lovely in that is that um, it 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 pointed back to the freedom all of us have to give up these these involvements. Now to answer your question with that story. I believe it's that freedom that we all know we have that terrifies us. It's scary. It's, it scared me when he said that. Hey, it's only business. I thought, oh, my God, all that, all these things I'm involved in that I think I have to do, my self-identity and all this, 
It's not necessary. That's terrifying. And that's why I think of it as sort of existential, that finally we respond to our, we're, we're trying to get rid of our own freedom. I would even say, since you asked the, the, the question, let me go on and make one of these big remarks. I think the war in Iraq is not a war against Osama, bin, or, you know, uh, Saddam. It's a war against our own uncertainty. The president has gone to war against his own people, not against an enemy. It's because uh, he's terrified by the freedom represented in, in great cultural traditions in American life that uh, he chooses to do something definitive as a clear boundary, clear enemy, full of certainty, like going to war. Uh, and, and I think very largely, it's not, not just President Bush, but I think warfare very often has that, uh, has that ground to it. I think we have uh, time for two more questions. Um, this one's from Anka. If I'm pronouncing it correctly. Okay. Anka. Anka. Okay, Anka. Okay, great. Um, by your definition of religion, science seems to qualify. Science oh, being oh, the oh. endless search into the mystery oh, of reality, reveling in wonders. Do you think that's true? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think science is the... Well, I was just telling Kevin this morning, I... I uh, was, uh, this was in the New York Times. I don't know if it got out here, but the the chap uh, <laughs> you know the uh, uh, the GCNN of uh, of the of the East of the liberal uh, elite out there. Uh, the the, uh, the 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 fellow who just won the Nobel Prize in Physiology happened to be giving a talk the day after he won the prize. And the, the Times quoted the first sentence of his talk, which was, he was talking to other scientists. He said, we are in the wonder business, uh, the mystery business. Um, the, the, what keeps science going is ignorance. I'm, not, I'm sorry, that's what he said, we're in the ignorance business. Uh, not in the wonder business, but what keeps... You see, I think Aristotle is absolutely right. What, knowledge is always a response to uh, some deeper question, some puzzlement, some mystery, something that drives us crazy and we have to find out about. Science drives us nuts. Uh, now, uh, you know, it raises questions that are really terrible to deal with. And, and, and for the most part, have no answers. And, and if, you, if you look at the one way of an interesting way of looking at the history of science is to look at the at the growth of scientific um, journals. It, they, they have since the beginning of the of the twentieth century. They have grown exponentially. At the beginning of the century, you could take a course at Harvard called Science. And and, uh, and 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 now it's impossible for any scientist on Earth, no matter how brilliant, to understand what's happening in every other science. 
Uh, scientists are themselves vastly ignorant of what science is about. Uh, so that, yes, if we understand science in those terms, it's, it's uh, it, I wouldn't call it religious, but I call it, it shares with the religions I was talking about, that, that um, sense of, of wonder. It, hey, by the way, science is poetry. No question about it. These, these, these fellows are uh, poetic masterpieces. Uh, you know, think, think of it this way. Um, Freud wanted to be a scientist. He thought he was a scientist, actually. Um, okay, I mean, he was a, a very bad scientist. But he was a very great poet. With a few ideas, he transformed a century. Just the idea of the unconscious and a few other of these things. He changed the culture of the world for a century. An idea, a simple idea, a scientific idea. So, yes, uh, it's full of uh, uh, religious power, I think, in that sense. So here, here's the last question. It's a big general question, which you like, from Lee <laughs> Fogel. Okay. Why does anything exist? Is there a purpose, or is the, the purpose of existence simply to perpetuate itself? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, uh, yeah, what I'm really, I'm really delighted with that question because uh, what I really came out, flew out here to do was to tell you the purpose of life. I mean, <laughs> uh, Heidegger, uh, the German philosopher Heidegger, makes a distinction between uh, what he calls ontic and ontological questions. Uh, an ontic question is is a question that goes like, um, what is, uh, in what way is this different from that? An ontological question is, why is there something rather than nothing? And, and he wanted to point out that most all of our thinking is ontic. That we're usually, I mean, even in, in science for the most part, we're, we're asking questions about the relationship of things. How is this thing related to that thing? But we never, we rarely, we do, but rarely ask the deeper question, why is there something rather than nothing? And, and, and Heidegger's point is that that deeper question animates the, the, the superficial one. That uh, the ontic is not possible without the ontological. So that behind every ontic exploration, there is that deep sense of, of unknowability, unintelligibility. We don't even know how to express, uh, except in indirect ways. And that's what makes our knowing possible. Okay. Enough. Enough.